0: 2 Samuel chapter 12 last time we met we were we discussed we covered 2 Samuel chapter 11 Uh, I think it's one of the saddest. Chapter 11 is one of the saddest chapters in all the Bible. David, King David, who's a man after God's own heart, uh, he falls in sin. He falls in sexual sin. He falls in, in murder. He falls in just about the worst possible sin that somebody could commit in their life. If you remember what happened in the very beginning of chapter 11, verse 1, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle, that David stayed home. He didn't go out to battle like he was supposed to with the men. He sent the guys out to battle. You go ahead, guys. You go take care of the battles. You don't need me. I'm just going to stay here. I'm going la- to relax. I'm getting a little older now. I'm just going to kind of retire. I'm going to hang back. And, and that's, when, that's when that opportunity for sin crept in. Remember one night he couldn't sleep. He goes out on, his, uh, up on the roof. He's walking on the roof. And he looks out over the city. And what does he see? There she is. There's Bathsheba. He sees her taking a bath. He realizes, ah, oh, I'm the king. So he asks about her. He has a, he's, he's, we talked about this. Remember, he, he's got a problem with the ladies. He's, he's, he's really has a problem with lust. He's already got about six or seven wives by this time, but that's not enough. He sees Bathsheba. He lusts after her. Temptation sets in. He contemplates it. He talks about, hey, who is that girl? And they tell her who he is. And he says, well, go bring her to me. And he brings her to him. Remember what happens is they lie together sexually And then he sends her back home, and then the bombshell comes. She comes back and says, hey, David, we got a problem. He goes, what's that? He goes, she goes, I'm pregnant. (sighs) Now what do I do? I know, I'll fix it. I'll call your husband. Your husband's one of my main warriors. I know him. They live not too far away. If he was looking off this rooftop, we'll call Uriah home. Send him back home. So David calls Uriah home and says, Uriah, come on home. Tell me what's going on with the battle. And now he says, all right, now that you're home, Uriah, go on home and spend the night with your, with your wife. And you see, David's plan was that he would, Uriah would go home with his wife. He would be intimate with his wife. Then she would have a baby and Uriah would live forever thinking that the baby was, was Uriah's, was his. But Uriah didn't fall for that. You see, Uriah was a man of character. When David said, go on home to your wife, he said, no chance. I'm not going home to my wife when my brothers are fighting. They're out in the battle fighting, sleeping in tents. I'm not going home. And he slept on the doorstep with the rest of the servants of David's, of his palace there. Well, David says, now what do I do? I got it. I'll get him drunk. I'll bring him in. So the next night he has dinner with David in the, at the house. I'll get him drunk. David gets him drunk and he says, all right, now he'll definitely go home. I mean, he's going he's gonna to be drinking. He, of course these guys going to want to go home to be with his wife. They've been out of battle for a while. Not Uriah. Uriah stays on the doorstep and says, "Not me. If my brothers are my brothers are out at battle sleeping in tents, I'm not going anywhere." So Uriah, so David sends a letter. Sends a letter by he's carrying his own death message back to back to uh, to Joab. And what does it say? Put Uriah in the front lines. Make an advance, and then when the battle gets heavy, just pull back. Joab gets the letter. He he trusts Uriah enough to not even read it. Wouldn't you have peaked? I would have peaked if the king gave me a lot. What's that thing say? Oh, whoa, I'm not giving that. But Uriah didn't even look. He sends him into battle. Joab sends him into battle. Uriah is killed. And uh, David takes Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. After her mourning time, he takes her for his wife. And you thought the days of our lives were bad. General Hospital, there it is. There's the plot within the scripture. The man after God's own heart falls in sexual sin. He takes Uriah's wife Bathsheba as his wife. Uriah is now dead. Adultery, murder, all of it's right there. And then I have to tell you what happens. They go on and they have a child. There's some time that passes. What we're going to read tonight in chapter 12 doesn't just happen right away. There's a little bit of time that passes. And I want to pick up in chapter 12, verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Na- said then Na- then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and he said to him there were two men in one city one rich and the other poor the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds but the poor man he had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and he had nourished And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. David thought he had it figured out. He thought his sin was covered. He thought his sin was hidden. He thought his sin was put away. Nobody really knows about it except for maybe Joab got a hint of it because he read my letter. Nobody really knows about it. Nobody. Can I just be honest and say that God knows about our sin? He knew about David's sin. But David, in David's mind, do you think he was still carrying the guilt around? I'm sure he was. But it's going to be brought out into the light. Sin will not stay in darkness forever. Now, I want, to notice, I want you to notice a couple things. The Lord sent Nathan. How would you like to be Nathan on that one? How would you like to be, go tell the king that, hey, hey, king, by the way, I know what you're doing. I know what you did with I know you killed Uriah. I know you took his wife. I know that the baby that you guys have now, your son, I know that, I know that that's from when you were together out of wedlock. How would you like to be Nathan to carry that message? What could the king do to you? He could kill you, Right? And I I think that's, but there's a part of us that says, well, that's a good thing. Way to go, Nathan. You're going to go straighten him out. You're going to rebuke him. But I want you to, I want to show you a couple things. Number one, the Lord sent Nathan. Okay. If you're going to do something like this in somebody's life, if you're going to call somebody out on a sin in their life, whether it's revealed to you by God or whether you just know it because you know them personally, you need to make sure the Lord is sending you to do that. You need to make sure you're being sent by the Lord. Nathan was David's friend. Nathan was a prophet. They, he had encouraged David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. They were friends. They had a relationship. They were sitting on the, on, I, I, I like it back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, like sitting on the deck together, on the porch together, looking out over the tabernacle of God saying, look, I dwell in a house of cedar and, and God dwells in a tent. So God sends his friend to him. But the important part is the Lord sent him. You see, it's real easy to find sin in somebody's life, isn't it? How, long, how much time do you have to spend with somebody so you find out, oh, oh there's sin in their life, there, there, there's sin? You see, see, some people, it's obvious, the minute you start talking to them, you can tell, oh, yeah, I know where they're at. It's easy to point that out, and it's easy to, it's easy to confront somebody on their sin. It's easy to say, you're doing this wrong, but I would caution you to be very, very careful until until you're sure the Lord is the one that's leading you to do that. Because if you are a friend, you have to understand the consequences for Nathan could have been death. But the consequences for you in doing that probably won't be death unless your friend's got a really bad temper. Probably more likely a loss of a friendship. And you might be willing to take that step. And you should take that step if the Lord's leading you. But Nathan is sent by God and he's sent to David and he tells him the story. He says, there's a rich guy and there's a poor guy. And the poor guy, he's just got one little lamb. The rich guy, he's got all kinds of flocks. He's got all kinds of flocks, all kinds of money, all kinds. I mean, he's just loaded. And the rich guy gets a visitor, and the visitor comes to see the rich guy. And and instead of taking out of his flocks, because it was cultural in that day, that when someone came to visit, you had to feed them and and house them. Instead of taking out of his flocks, he went and he took the the one special little ewe lamb. It's the family pet. He raised him, he ate of his food, he, he took the special family pet, killed it, cooked it, and served it. Now what's David's response to this? He's furious about it, right? How dare him do such a thing? How, I don't understand it. How, how, how could he do such a thing? That's terrible. Now, and David actually passes judgment on him, right? He says he should, not only does he have to pay back four times as much, which is biblical, he says what? He should die. He should be dead for this. He should be killed for this. But I want to point something else else out to you. What was David's sin? It was adultery. It was murder, right? It was, it was, he took the Ulam, which is referring to David taking Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Uriah is just a, a regular man. He's a, he's a guy serving in David's army. David takes his wife. And I want to point something out because I think this is an important parallel. Here, God likens adultery to theft. To theft. You see, we don't think of it that way. You see, we think of the sin of adultery as kind of being in its own place, its own thing. But God here, he's like, "What did they, what, what's the sin? What's David so mad about? Because he took what didn't belong to him, and he already had plenty of it. So God's taking adultery, and he's liking it to theft. Let me, let me just kind of explain that for a minute. <laughs> sexual sin, sexual immorality, adultery... Let me just show you, or let me just explain it to you. When you take something that doesn't belong to you, you're stealing something from somebody else. David stole Bathsheba. He took Bathsheba away from Uriah. The Bible would be very clear, even when it comes to uncovering somebody's nakedness, which means looking upon somebody in their birthday suit, somebody naked. Don't be looking upon naked people. When you do that, whether it be pornography or whether it be outside of marriage, you're stealing something from that person that belongs to somebody else. Let me just make it perfectly clear. If two people engage in a sexual relationship prior to being married, they're stealing something that doesn't belong to them. Well, what are they stealing, Rob? What if they give it to them willingly? No, they're stealing something from their future husband or their future wife. They're taking something that doesn't belong to them. They're, they're, they're taking something that God has designed for one man and one woman to enjoy together, and they're taking part of it from them. It, it becomes a theft, more than a, even more so than an adultery. And let me see if I can just, let me just put this out there. If you don't believe me, especially for the young people, if you don't believe me, the more intimate, and it doesn't even have to be sexual, the more intimate relationships that you have before you get married will then be drawn into and affect your marriage. And if you don't believe me, find a Christian couple who is serving the Lord, who are walking with the Lord, who were promiscuous before they got married and ask them how that affects their marriage. Because if they're honest with you, they'll tell you that their previous sexual encounters is something they bring into their marriage. And it's something that they have to deal with throughout their marriage. You see, David stole something from Uriah. He stole something from Bathsheba, too. Now, she may have been willing to give it, but it didn't belong to him. He took it. As human beings, we live in a sexually charged culture, don't we? How far do we have to look to find something sexual? What do we know about sex? It sells, right? It sells. You, you put a pretty girl, you put a handsome guy, you put him in a good outfit, and guess what? It's going to draw attention. It's going to draw people. But here's what we need to understand. If you or I were to look at somebody undressed, unclothed, you are stealing part of them. You are taking part of them for yourself. I read an interesting study not long ago, and it's going to refer. I'm going to mention this to the guys, and I I don't know whether the girls know this or not, but you should know it. They took a they took a group of guys, and they did a they did a, a study. They wanted to see what part of their brains were affected when they looked at girls dressed differently. So in one, in one picture, they would have a provocative girl dressed. In another picture, they have a, a, a modest, a, an attractive, pr- provocative girl. In another picture, they would have a modestly, an attractive girl who's dressed modestly, very, very modestly. Do you think that the different parts of the brains reacted differently, or do you think it was the same part each time? Let me just tell you, and this has been proven, it was done out of Princeton. You can look it up online for yourself. Here's what they found, that when a girl is dressed provocatively... The part of the man's brain that is triggered is the same part of the brain that is triggered when he looks at tools at Home Depot. I'm not kidding. You say, well, huh? It's not funny, but let me. But that's that's the same part. And so, why? Is, what does is it? You're right. It's not funny. But what does it mean? It means when a when a when a woman dresses provocatively, the man doesn't see her as a person. He doesn't see her as a human being. He sees her as a tool as an object that he wants to acquire, as an object that he wants to go after, as an object rather than a human being. When they showed him the same pictures of women who were dressed conservatively or modestly, different part of the brain, the one that's caring and compassionate showed up. That's the one that was, that was activated. That was, that's the one that was activated. So why, why, is, that, why is that important? Well, I don't know why I just told you all that. No, I do know why. Here in our study, we're watching the process of David. We're watching this fall that he's had. Bathsheba is in the bathtub. She's taking a bath. He sees her. He goes and he gets her. It's a, it's a, it's a situation of lust. It's a situation where he's taking something that doesn't belong to him. And as human beings, as men, as women, we need to understand this is not just David. David has his own responsibility in this, and so does Bathsheba. But neither one can blame the other one. They both have to accept their responsibility for it. But we have to understand and we have to be very, very clear that we are, you, you know, when you do that, when you take something that doesn't belong to you, it is, you're actually stealing from somebody else. Now, back to our, back to our study here. So back in our story, the traveler comes, the rich man who refused to take from his own flock, from his own herd, to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, prepared it for the man who had come. David's anger was greatly aroused. His anger was greatly aroused. Why is he so mad? Why is he so mad? He's, he's really mad. No one asked David to cast judgment here. He says that the man should return four times and that the man should be dead. He said his anger is greatly aroused and, his, and, and the man should be dead. Anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely be dead. Why is he? No one asked him to stand in judgment here. David is obviously believing this story to be true. But here's what I want you to know. In awareness of his own sin, in his awareness of his own sin, David is judging harshly. You see, he realizes in his own sin, he's judging more harshly. He's judging harshly because he's aware of what's going on in his life. What does he want to do? He wants to point the finger at everybody else. You see, this is a point in David's life where he's slipped. He's drifted away from God. He's let the lust of his flesh draw him away. He's slipped. He's fallen back. He's, he's backslidden, if you want to say. You know, the scripture only says in that situation that the man would only be required to repay the lamb four times. So he should give him four more lambs for taking his lamb improperly. But David says, oh, no, no, no. I want him, I want him to be dead over this. He moves into an emotional state where I'm going to point my finger. And how easy is is it for us as Christians to point our finger at somebody else? You see, David didn't realize this was him at this point in the conversation. It didn't come until Nathan would tell him later. David says, that man should die. That man should pay back four times. Christians, we do the same thing. We find somebody who's got sin in their life. What do we do? That's wrong. That's dirty. They're, they're, They're terrible. That's horrible. Point that finger at them. Look at them. All the while, what is, it trying, what, are, what, are, what is David trying to do with his own life? Trying to make him feel better about himself. I'm not that bad. You see, that's what he's thinking. I might have committed murder. I might have committed adultery. But I'm not as bad as that guy. I didn't take that little baby ewe lamb. I, I, yes, you did, David. You're no, worse, you're no better than he is. You're a matter of fact, I'm talking about you, Nathan would say. J, David standing in judgment, in awareness of his own sin, he's judging more harshly. But I also want to point something else out here. Sometimes, sometimes true repentance requires restoration. Notice this, that the Bible would say in Exodus chapter 22, verse 11, that after taking this lamb, it should be restored four times. Sometimes when you're going through a process of repentance, and sometimes there's restoration that needs to take place. Sometimes just repenting and being sorry for something, maybe there's something in your life that you need to go then restore. Maybe, somebody, maybe you've done something wrong. Maybe, somebody, maybe you've taken something from somebody and it needs to be restored. You say, wait a minute, Rob, what if I did something 10 years ago? What if I did something 20 years ago? What if I did something 30 years ago? Sometimes it's not possible to restore it. I'm not telling you to go back and visit all your promiscuous relationships if they include in your past. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is sometimes there needs to be, there needs to be restoration along with repentance. Sometimes we're going to need to go into our past and say to somebody, hey, I've repented of wronging you, but I've wronged you. I've, I took something from you. Again, please understand, I'm not telling married couples to then go back to your past. I'm not saying that at all. That's not, that's not what I'm referring to. But what I am referring to is saying, being open to the when the Lord says, hey, can you go back and fix this? Can you go back to somebody that you wronged and say, hey, I'm sorry? Hey, I, I really did this wrong and I know about this. There might be a time for that. Sometimes there's, a, there's, a, there's some restoration that needs to take place. Now, look what he says in verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. That's not the good you're the man. Not like you the man. That's <laughs> you the man. Not, not the good one. This is that guy that you're mad at that should just be dead and restore for full that you just sentenced to death. That's you, David. That's you. That's you, David. And then look what he says to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. And gave you the house of Israel in Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. I anointed you. I delivered you. I gave you. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you much more. And then look what he says. Verse nine. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Notice what he says. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? He says, David, I've given you everything. I anointed you. I gave you the kingdom of Judah. I gave you the kingdom of Israel. I gave you everything. I would have even given you more. Do you see what David's sin is there? He's not thankful for what he has. He wants something that doesn't belong to him. He's not content, he's not happy with what he has. You see, you and I would look and go, wow, if I was anointed by God as king over Israel and I was delivered from the hand of my enemies and I, was, and, I get, and I was given my master's house and he's given wives into his hands, he's given the house of Israel to Judah, I would have given you much more. But that wasn't what David wanted. David wanted what David couldn't have. Isn't that the story of our life? Don't you want what you can't have? It's not what I already have what I don't want what I have, I want what I can't have. We're taught that from little kids. Remember when the Christmas catalogs used to come and you sit in the back and circle everything you want and hope you get half of it or some of it. We want what we can't have. You see, David was living a life that was unthankful. He wasn't thankful. God had given him everything that he could possibly. He's living in a beautiful house of cedar. He's got a big house. He's living in the good neighborhood. He's got the power. He's got the fancy car. Well, maybe chariot. But he's 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 got the wealth, he's got everything he needs. Yeah, but I want her. Uriah's got her. He says he's got all of Saul's wives. How many wives did he really have? The Bible lists eight or, I think it's eight or nine wives. We don't even know. There may have been more than that. All of them he's got. That's not the one I want. I want that one. Remember, it all started because he got lazy and didn't go to battle like he was supposed to go to battle. He hung out, hung out around the house to relax a little bit, to kick back. Wasn't doing God's work anymore. He's on, in relaxation mode. Now, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, he will also reap. David here planted a corrupt seed that was sown a long time ago of lust in his life. It was left, it was left unchecked in his life, and now it's bearing the bitter fruit. David will also reap the consequences of his choices. There's consequences coming. Isn't there consequences with our sin? You see, it's a really cool thing because we're all sinners, right? We all fall short. We know that. And we know that our sin brings certain consequences. doesn't mean God doesn't love us, but there's certain consequences. If I decide to leave church tonight and I go up to Walmart and I decide I'm going to do some stealing and I steal a couple of big steaks and a few things and I get caught, Lord, forgive me. Will the Lord forgive me? Sure he will. Do you think the police officer is going to forgive me? What's he going to do? Should have thought of that before you put the steaks in your pocket or your bag or whatever in your backpack. Where am I going to go? I'm going to go off to jail. He's going to arrest me and send me off. It's a consequence of my action. Can I still be forgiven by God? Absolutely. But the consequences are coming. Depending on how bad my choice is, the consequences may be really bad too. But I want to show you or I want to tell you that David's consequences have been delayed for a long time. They've been delayed. They're not instantaneous. He's been given time to repent. I don't doubt for a minute that he's been carrying guilt. He's been feeling this. He's slipping back from the Lord. Look at the consequences. Yeah, well, in verse nine, he says, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite. How's he, how's he despised the commandment? He's killed. He's committed adultery. He's taken a wife that wasn't his to be, to be his. Now look at verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword... The sword shall never, that word never, it means never, depart from your house because you have despised me. Notice how God sees that. Notice God, you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Doesn't even call her by name. That was was Uriah's wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. You wanna have a lot of wives, David? Get ready. I will take your wives before your eyes. I will give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. You see, David's sin was a secret. Not many people knew about it. Not many people knew that what had happened. Maybe Maybe the captain of his army, when he got the letter to pull back on Uriah, maybe he figured something out. Maybe he knew David's personality enough. Maybe Joab thought, yeah, I know David. He's probably got another girl he's trying to you know, get together with. And now I'm just going to do his dirty work for him. Nobody knew about it. But what does God say? Everybody's going to know about it, David. You're gonna, your consequence is going to be public. Does that scare you? Do you, could you? Just think about your sin in your life, and all of a sudden God says, or could say to you, I'm not saying he's going to, I'm gonna make it public. It's private right now, but it's gonna be public. I want I don't know about you, but that's enough to that make me want to quit whatever it is I was doing. What would that be? I don't want my that's pride alone. I don't want anybody else to know. I don't want I don't want people to know that. He says, You I'll raise up an adversity against you from your own house. We talked about David having having a, a lust for women, wanting many wives. With many wives come many problems. And David's going to see that. He state, God says, I'm going to raise up adversity because of what you've done. You have, you know, remember, remember, the kings weren't supposed to have many wives. They are supposed to have one wife. I'll take your wives before your eyes. I'll give them to your neighbor. By the way, that neighbor, it's going to be his son that's going to come against him. It's going to be his son that comes against him later on in 2 Samuel chapter 16. And he's going to lie with your wives in the sight of all of Israel all of Israel is going to see this. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. Look what David says in verse 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. David finally comes to the place where he acknowledged I have sinned. I've sinned. Can you imagine as David's hearing this, David's on top of the world he's got a new wife new child probably young child we don't know how old how old the baby was he, here he is he's on top of the world Uriah's dead that's no an ancient memory that's happened a while ago and all of a sudden Nathan out of the blue comes to him one day tells him this little story about a rich man a poor man and a ewe lamb and David says I want that man dead and Nathan says that's you buddy and David and not only that I'm going to tell you the consequences for your sin I'm going to tell you what's coming you're gonna live a rough life. God wants to remind you that He raised you up, He anointed you, He gave you the kingdom, you weren't thankful, and now I'm gonna tell you the consequences that are coming. Here comes you're gonna have a rough life. The sword will never depart from you. You're gonna always be a soldier, always gonna be a battle, there's always gonna be death, there's always gonna be slaying. It's gonna be blood's gonna be on your hands. It's never gonna leave you. And your wives. They're going to be taken by somebody else in the presence of everybody. Your sin was secret, but now it's going to be made public. And David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Those are important words for us to be able to say as Christians. Can you say, I have sinned against the Lord? Or do you still look at the decisions you make, the life that you live, or the things that you've done and go, ah, they're not so bad? They're not so bad. I'm not as bad as David, I haven't committed murder. I haven't committed adultery. It's just a little promiscuity. I, have, I haven't really done that much. I mean, after all, Rob, you just said he killed the guy. And he even involved other people in the killing because he, let, he had, a, had the other people of Am and killed him. Well, Rob, my, my life's not that bad. You know, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. David finally is getting it. His, for this time that he's been away, he doesn't make excuses, he doesn't say, Well, she was bathing with the window open. She should have had her blinds pulled. Or she, she should have had somebody there so I couldn't see. Or it's her fault. She was dressed the way it, it, it. blame it on the woman. He doesn't say that. Because I've sinned against the Lord. He doesn't try to justify it. He doesn't try to rationalize it. You know, we can be pretty good at rationalizing things, can't we? We can rationalize all kinds of things in our mind. Oh, I need this, I need that. And if I had it, well, I'd even use it for ministry. And it'd be really cool. And, and we can, we can, you can make, you can rationalize anything. David doesn't do it, he simply says. I have sinned against the Lord. What do you think's going through his mind right now? Here he's just been found out. The deep, dark secret. The skeleton in the closet is now exposed. Here it is. What's yours? What if it was to come out tonight? What's your skeleton that's hidden in your closet? Now all of a sudden, somebody comes over and says, hey, I'm going to tell you a story. And you go, yeah, it's terrible. And they go, that's you. (sighs) David says, I've sinned against the Lord. He realizes the sin. Notice what he says. Who's he sinned against? The Lord did he sin against Bathsheba? Yeah, but the Lord is, is the Lord is the focus. He didn't, sorry, dude, I didn't mean to mess up your, your your marriage, Uriah. Well, she's with me now. I'm taking care of her. Don't worry. Add more money than you did. She's living a better life. No, no, it's not. A, he, he realizes my sin is against God. It's not. It's not against man. It's against God. He understands. You know, as men, as human beings, we have things that are going to happen in our life, and we're not really entitled to anything. But the sin in David's life was against God. I want to give you a look at what he's thinking. So if you'll turn with me to Psalm 51. A few pages to the left. Psalm 51. It says at the very beginning, it says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So this is David's journal, if you will. This is what he's writing down. This is what he's, after this situation has happened, here's what he does. He's writing this. In verse 1, he says, have mercy upon me, O God, for I've sinned against the Lord. Remember, he sinned against the Lord. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, O God, according to my goodness. No, he says, according to your loving kindness." According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. It's kind of like the sinner's prayer, isn't it? Forgive me, Lord. Have mercy on me, according to Lord, your merciful, your loving kindness, your tender mercies. Get rid of my transgressions, God. Wash me. Why did he need to be washed? Because he was dirty, he was filthy. He was carrying around the guilt of murder. He was carrying around adultery. He was carrying it all around. Pride, unthankfulness, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, notice what it says in verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David acknowledges that he's a sinner and he remembers his sin. He remembers that I'm, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in, my, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. and in the hidden And in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. David says, I acknowledge my sin, I remember my sin, and I understand the depth of my sin. I understand that that I'm sinning against God. It's not just against a person. I'm sinning against my creator. I'm sinning against the one who has done everything for me, the one who has given me everything that I have. I was unthankful towards God. And in verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. The bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Remember the day that you got saved? Remember the day you accepted Christ? If you have one of those moments where there's a specific date and time, you said, I am following Jesus. Lord, I am a sinner. And you, will you forgive me? And He does, you feel amazing. It's like, whoa. I just, all the burdens, all the wrongs, everything I've done is no longer being held against me. You know, because before someone accepts Christ, there's this guilt that they drag around with them. They have to. We already know it happens. I I shouldn't have done that. I, I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't do these things. But the moment you accept Christ, you go, Lord, forgive me. And he does. He forgives us and he washes us clean. The Bible tells us he doesn't remember our sins anymore. He purges us, makes us clean, whiter than snow. Look at verse 10. Not only does he, that's not it. It's like, you know, the commercial. Wait, but wait, there's more. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You remember what happened to Saul. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. In other words, David's saying, I've been away a while, God. I don't have the joy of salvation anymore. I need I need that's something that we need to pray for do you have the same joy of salvation tonight as you had the day that you got saved you need to ask for that mark it down Lord restore to me the joy of salvation uphold me by your generous spirit and I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you notice Lord I've sinned against God forgive me purge me cleanse me and now you can use me that's what David's saying Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Deliver me from my guilt, Lord. I've killed a lot of people, especially Uriah. Deliver me from that guilt. I don't want to carry that anymore. Mm -hmm. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. for For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken spirit. That's what he, what's a broken spirit? It's realizing that you're a sinner. That you have nothing to offer God except your life. That, that, it, it's realizing that you're no better than anybody else. As Christians, we're saved. We're not perfect. We still make mistakes. It's realizing who you are. God is my creator. I am undone. I was, I was born into iniquity. I'm still a sinner. Yes, I'm forgiven. And I can't wait to get to heaven where I can leave this body of sin behind me. And I can leave it here. I was born that way. Notice what he says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. He doesn't want sacrifices. He doesn't want you to give money. He doesn't want you to serve in the church. He doesn't want you to try to get rid of your guilt by doing those things. You see, he does want you to do them. But he wants you to do them out of love, not out of guilt. You see, you can be guilted into doing lots of things in life, can't you? You ever been guilted into doing anything? Parents, we're good at that. Hey, no laughing over there. <laughs> we can guilt people into all kinds of things, can't we? From relationships to our kids, husbands and wives, grandkids, parents. But that's not what the Lord wants. What does he want? He wants you to be broken. He wants you to realize, you know what? I'm a sinner. I fall short every day. I I, I don't make it every day. I fall short. And he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. You're not going to despise these things. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with the righteousness, with burnt offerings, and the whole burnt offerings. They shall be bulls on the altar. So we get a glimpse here in Psalm 51. Turn back to 2 Samuel. We get a glimpse of what David's heart was. And we see, it's like reading his journal. It's a psalm I would encourage you. We don't have time to cover it in too much depth tonight, but go back and read it again, especially if you're kind of drifted, especially if you've kind of, you know, maybe I'm not so excited about my salvation anymore. Maybe I have kind of drifted. Maybe I have been living a life where, well, I'm, I'm not living the way that I should be. Go back to Psalm 51. Let it, ask the Lord to do those things in you. Pray it as a prayer. You be David. You be, let that be your life and you pray those things and watch what happens. Back to David. So David said in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, you know what, David, you have. And buddy, there's consequences coming. But I want to tell you something. The Lord has put away your sin. The Lord's put it away. And you shall not die. He's not going to kill you over it. Yeah, there's going to be heartache. Yeah, there's going to be a burden. Yes, there's consequences in sin. But the Lord's not going to kill you over it. But, however, in verse 14, because by this deed, David, here's here's the real problem in all this. You've have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Because you were stupid and chased the girl killed the husband, have the baby, you became the hypocrite that everybody's talking about. Man of God, huh? Yeah, what about the Uriah thing? What about Bathsheba, man of God? Isn't that the greatest knock on Christianity? Aren't we a bunch of hypocrites? Isn't that what people say? It's, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. You say one thing and do you go to church on Sunday morning and you're out on Saturday night doing everything everybody else does. I don't think that's a Christian at all. I don't think the Christian, I don't, I, I listen, Christians might fall in sin, but we want to get out of it. We've got the Holy Spirit pulling us out of it. We don't want to stay where we are. I think if somebody, if you're stuck there, you're staying, you're living, you've got to really question, am I really saved? As, as, as a believer, I want out of that. I don't want, I'm not going to just stay there. I have to be, the, as, as a believer, if I fall in sin in some way, and you know, whether it be a thought in my mind, Lord, I've sinned against you. Forgive me, Father. I'm not going to stay there and enjoy and wallow around like a pig in the mud. I want to get out and get clean. I know the feeling of what it's like to be clean. I don't want to stay dirty. That's what Christians have to be. And more importantly, understand this. When you profess to be a Christian, the decisions you make might, if you make a bad decision, give somebody an occasion to blaspheme God. I thought you were a Christian. You said you were a Christian, yet you're acting like everybody else in the world. I think it would be better if we're going to do that to not even tell anybody we're a Christian. Just seriously, don't tell anybody. If you're going to go out and do all the world, don't even pretend to be a Christian. Don't put a cross on your neck. Don't, don't do that. Just, just don't even do it. Just go do it. Go live in the world. And when you're ready to come follow Christ, then come follow Christ. I don't think we should be doing both. We're not trying to be the world. I think churches that are trying to be you know, relatable to the world, I think that's a big problem too. Why do we want to relate to the sinful world? Let's be someplace refreshing. Let's be someplace different that people can come into and hear the word of God taught. Let's come to church and be challenged and be, and be taught from the Bible. Sometimes we're going to come into church and we're going to be convicted. That's a good thing. So a message like this, when I talk about your sin being found out publicly, whoa, who wants their sin known publicly? Just stand up and start telling us. we well, I'll pray for you. No, we don't want that. We want to keep it hidden. No, that's not it. David says, or Nathan says, because by this deed you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And then look what he says next. The child also who is born, who is born to you, shall surely die. That baby, that child, we don't know how old he is or he, I don't remember if it says he or not. We don't know whether it's young or older, but what we do know is the child also is born to you, shall surely die. And then Nathan departs and he goes home and he leaves David with his thoughts. And that's where Psalm 51 comes in. And look at verse uh, the last half of this, verse fifteen. The Lord struck the child and Uriah's wife that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. Can you imagine your child getting sick, and you already knowing the child's going to die because it's been because and you know it's because of what you've done. That's pretty heavy. David's pleading with God. David fasted, and he went in, and he lay all night on the ground. So the elders of the house arose, and they went to him to raise him up from the ground. And he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then, one of the, then, one, then on the seventh day, seven days he's been fasting and laying on the ground, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He might do some harm." And David saw his servants were whispering. David perceived the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. You see, there's consequences, as I said before, with sin. The life of this child... Where'd the child go, by the way? Anybody know? I believe in my heart, the child's with the Lord. I believe that the Lord would, that that child is now not being, you know if, if he wasn't old enough to, to believe in God, he would be with the Lord. And now here we come across the child's dead. David's mourning. He's in severe mourning. He's not eating. He's on the ground, face down, begging God to spare the child, asking God, you know, will you spare the child, God? Will you, will you not allow it? He's trying to change God's mind. But in doing so, in spending seven days face down before the Lord, in spending seven days in fasting, it puts David in the right heart and the right mindset to accept what's coming. So what happens is the child passes away, says he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Now his servants are thinking, "What's wrong with this guy? He's broken to pieces. All before the child dies, now all of a sudden the child's gone and now he's, he's in there worshiping? Now he's hungry? He's going to have something to eat? I don't understand it. Verse 21, the servant said to him, what is this that you've done? You fasted, you wept for the child while he was alive, but the child died and you arose and ate food. And David said, while well, the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So David says, I'm done. God told me that this was one of the consequences of my sin. I prayed, I fasted, I tried to change God's mind. And by the way, prayer and fasting won't change God's mind. I tried, but once the child is dead, I realize, I don't know. He's not, I, there's nothing more that I can do. David accepts the will of God. He accepts the consequence. He accepts it. I, 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 he accepts what's taking place here. He goes in and he actually worships. He wasn't worshiping because the child was dead. He was worshiping God for who God was, regardless of the situation in his life. That's a lesson as Christians that we need to learn. We worship God for who he is, not for what he is doing for us at the moment. whether Because we, sometimes we're in difficult situations. We might not like what God's doing in our life. It might be kind of rough. It might be kind of tough. It might be a difficult season. You still worship because God is still God and he's seated on the throne. He's still the one in control. We don't just quit worshiping. So when he's done, he realizes the child passes away and he says, well, now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No, you can't bring him back again. Now look what he says. I shall go to him but he shall not return to me. A lot of people believe this is where we get the verse that says, I'll see my future, my relatives in heaven. I'll see those loved ones that know Jesus Christ. I'll see them again in heaven. <laughs> Surrey he reads the Bible. Look at that. <laughs> A lot of people think and a lot of people this is where it comes from that we will see our loved ones again here's the thing though we have to meet him in heaven will you make the promise to meet your loved ones in heaven will you follow christ will you have that hope of seeing dave you know why he can worship because he knows it's only temporary i'm gonna see him again i'm saying him we're not told it's a him i don't think i don't remember seeing it as a him i'm gonna see that child again Not now, not tomorrow, but when I get to be with the Lord, I'm going to see the child again. How comforting is that for our lost loved ones? Maybe you lost a child. Maybe that's in your background. You know what? You'll see him again. If you're in heaven, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll get to see that child again. That's what David says. I can't bring him back. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And look at verse 24. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. That's important too. You know, David. You could say, "Well, David, you blew it. You really messed up this one, David. Why don't you just divorce her and get her, kick her out of your life?" That's not what God would have either. You see, did he blow it? Yeah, he blew it. Did he commit adultery? Yeah. Did murder all? Yeah. But but you know what? He's not done with Bathsheba. He doesn't put her aside. He doesn't kick her out. He's still her wife. He's still going to treat her like a wife. He comforted. Her. He goes into her, lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. Solomon, Solomon, that's, that's mighty Solomon. That's the, that, that's, that. He'll have the same problem his dad has with the women, but it's, 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 he's a man of wisdom. This is, this, he, Bathsheba is going to be in the line of Christ. If you read Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you will find the wife of Uriah, which is Bathsheba. How cool is it that God will take something that David utterly messed up. I mean, could you have messed something up any worse? I mean, you really couldn't. To take another man's wife, adultery, murder, the whole thing, couldn't get any worse, and God says, I'm gonna redeem that. I'm gonna fix it. I'm not only gonna redeem it, I'm gonna put her, she's going to be in the line of Christ. She would bear Solomon." From David would be the father, Bathsheba would be the mother of Solomon. Then on down the lineage, Matthew chapter 1, if you want to see her name, she's down there. She would then be in the line of Christ. It's amazing. He takes our biggest mess-ups and says, I'll do something good with it if you'll let me. Will you let me fix it? Will you let me do something with it? Don't put her away. Don't run away from her. Don't ignore her. You messed it up. Now live with it. Deal with it. Comfort her. She's your wife now. Let me fix it. I like this, these two chapters in the Bible, because they show us the humanity. They show us that sometimes we have a tendency to, oh, it's getting late. Sometimes we have a tendency to put people on pedestals. You know, King David, the greatest king that ever lived, greatest king of Israel. What an amazing king, you know. But it shows our humanity. God is in the business of using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Remember who he was when he was anointed king? He was the shepherd boy out in the field. He wasn't even called in. When Samuel shows up at Jesse's house, where's your sons? He parades all his sons by him. That's it. That's all you have. None of these are them. Well, I I got one more. He's he's, he's out there watching the sheep. that's, that's, That's nobody. He's nobody. No, no. In God's eyes, he's somebody. God's going to do something. God's going to anoint him and make him the king over Israel. He's going to mess up and God's going to take what he messes up and he's going to redeem it. You know he'll do the same thing in your life. He'll take your mess ups. He'll take your past life. He'll take all the things that you've done wrong. He'll do it. He'll take it all and he'll redeem it. He'll restore all the years the locusts have eaten away the scripture tells us. But here's the catch to it. You've got to be like David and you have to be able to say, I have sinned against the Lord. Lord, I've sinned against you. Lord, I, I, I stand before you. I sit before you as a sinner. I have fallen short. If you can say that, if you can do that, you're on the path to then being used by God. Because David would then realize the mistake that he made. He would confess his sin. He would ask God to clean his heart in Psalm 51 and give him a new heart and put away his guilt and God would honor that. The question is, where are we? Will you do it? If you're here tonight and you've fallen short and you go, you know what, I'm I'm not really a follower of Christ. I haven't done that. Tonight's your night if you want to. Before we close, we always take a few minutes in prayer. And I would just encourage you, you don't have to do it publicly. You can if you'd like. I'll be glad to pray with you. But if you have been away from the Lord, I want you to go before the Lord tonight and say, Lord, I'm like David. I've been away. I might not have murdered. I might not have committed adultery yet. But I'm on that path. I'm going to take the warning that you've given me. And I'm going to tell you, Lord, I've sinned against you. And I'm going to repent. And I'm going to read down through Psalm 51. And I'm going to ask you to do those things in me that David's asking. Create in me a clean heart, Lord. Forgive me. Put away my guilt. Put away my shame. And the greatest thing is he will do that. He will do that. He will meet you. If you walk out of here guilty tonight, it's because you chose to. God doesn't want you to walk out guilty. It doesn't matter what you've done. Did you do it worse than David? Probably not. God forgive him. Remember what Nathan said to him? I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. And the Lord will do the same thing for us. So, take a few minutes, go before the Lord quietly and pray on your own. I'll come back up in just a couple of minutes and close us. Father, we just come before you. Lord, I thank you that these stories, these messages, the men, these parts of the lives of David's life is recorded for us. Father, we understand that there's consequences with our sin. We don't really like to admit that, though. We just assume they're never coming. We assume that your graciousness, your tenderness, your long suffering, your mercy, your mercy, We just assume that we'll never be called out on it. But instead, Father, may may the Holy Spirit touch our heart tonight. And if there's things in our life, may we be willing to go before you quietly and admit that we've sinned against you. May we repent of those things, turn away from them, not following them forever. Not just asking, say, hey, I'm sorry. But instead, really making that effort, really saying, I'm going to turn a different direction. I'm no longer walking after the world. I'm walking after Jesus. Jesus. Or may there be no hypocrisy in our life. May we not give people an occasion to blaspheme you because of the way that we speak with our mouth and live with our life. Instead, may we be fully committed to you in all that we do. Let's go before the Lord quietly now, just for a few minutes.